One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Fast Talk, Street Talk, Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk, Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On the app, on your mobile, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It's another start to the week. It's another Monday morning uh, and there are more blues out there than you can shake a stick at. Not because, of course, uh, the blues are losing. Not because the blues are in any way depressing. Not because the blues are the party of change. No, uh, it's because there's an awful lot of people involved in what I can only describe as a feeding frenzy. That's right. From Westminster all the way down to Osterley where Sky Studios are. All the way back into Broadcasting House where the BBC operates from all the way over uh, to White City where ITV are doing their thing all the way back to newspapers in Fleet Street uh, where they don't live anymore but you know what I mean they're all talking about it because they think it's the only story in town isn't it well, actually, no, it isn't the only story in town. Boris Johnson uh, is once again at the centre of calls for him to resign. There were all sorts of weaselly backbenchers who were trying to get what they want by forcing out the Prime Minister because apparently he knew something about a bloke who did a bit of groping and then gave him a job. Shocking. He says he didn't know. Downing Street says he didn't know. He didn't know much, does he, Boris? He didn't know there were parties going on. He didn't know that the bloke he appointed who had, in fact, had to resign for doing a bit of what can only be described as rearranging a shirt with an Olympic rower. Apparently, he didn't know about that. Uh, Gave him a job anyway. Great. No problem at all. How on earth could that possibly have gone wrong? This is a bloke who apparently was renowned for getting absolutely sway-baked and then groping people. Excellent. Some people think that's a qualification for becoming a Tory MP. I'm not one of them. But here's the point. Surely there are more important things to talk about in life For example, the 22,000 criminals who are currently on the run, except they're not on the run, they're sitting at home waiting to be arrested, but the police won't arrest them because apparently there's not enough police. That's quite an important story. Some of these people have committed murder, or they're certainly accused of it. Some of them have committed rape, or are certainly accused of it. Some of them have committed serious assault, or at least have been accused of it. But they haven't been able to turn up for court, therefore they are technically fugitives. We've also got 10 billion quid on the missing list because people have fraudulently removed it from Her Majesty's government. That's right, universal credit. No wonder nobody's working. 10 billion quid has been paid to people who shouldn't have had any of it. What is going on? 18% of universal credit is now fraudulently obtained. Deary me. I mean, that's without worrying about what Vladimir Putin's up to. So there's plenty to talk about this morning. Don't worry about that. This is Monday morning. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. This is the time for straight talking. Let's do it. (laughs) 
Now, we've got some delights for you today. Peter Hitchens is going to be here to talk to us, of course, about the problems of cannabis legalisation. He wrote a big piece about it at the weekend. And, in fact, uh, there was another massive piece about it in the Mail on Sunday. We'll be looking at that. And Widdicombe's going to be here to talk to us about the problem in the justice system. But let's kick things off, first of all, with former Conservative MP, of course, Nick Dubois. Nick, a very good morning to you. Good morning to you, Mike. Now, I don't know whether you would agree with me, Nick, that there is a kind of feeding frenzy going on in Westminster at the moment and everybody is being caught up in it. I was listening to some of those people who work uh, on the other side of what I regard as the home of common sense, to wit, the Today programme, uh, an awful lot of sort of gnashing of teeth going on. Every single thing that now happens to the Tory party seems to be used as a stick to beat the Prime Minister with. Well, it didn't take them long to turn their fire on the Prime Minister and a question over his judgment. I mean, you 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 will have heard it on other media and, and indeed pretty much what Roger Gale, the MP, was saying on uh, Julia's show yeah. earlier today. Uh, and, and, you know, there are questions of, of judgment. Let, uh, you, MP after MP seems to be coming on and saying, we all knew about this bloke. Mm. Um, and yet, uh, obviously, uh, not many of them seem to do that much about it. Some may have done. And then the Prime Minister goes and appoints him to the job which is responsible for handling complaints of this nature, as well as filling party discipline. So I get that. But to your wider point, Mike, um, I could list you twice as many things that you you listed there that we should be focusing on. And of course, that's not going to dominate the news. And that is frustrating. Will Quince this morning, yeah. the minister given the duty to talk about childcare, where families are paying £2,000 plus so that they can go to work. You know, it's a nonsense system we've got. They're trying to do something about it, but nobody's talking about it. And that is frustrating. Yeah, I think that's really uh, where we are. But of course, I mean, you've worked in in Westminster for many years in different guises. I mean, you know, for example, that it exists on uh, the fuel of gossip. People tell stories about one another all the time. Oh, did you hear about so-and-so? But I mean, I would have said to the likes of um, Nick Robinson and others who are sort of questioning what, did people know about this guy, um, Chris? And what did uh, you know? What did they? What did they tell the prime minister about him? The fact is that if you worked on the principle that people had stories about them all the time, you probably would not invent and hire anybody, would you? And I realise that he did step down at one point for for something that happened before. But are you seriously going to tell me that just because somebody's done something once, they should never be employed in a decent office again? Look, I, I, I'd like to agree with you, Mike, but it was a crazy promotion to give Chris Pincher the deputy chief whip role, because, as I said, that is the one that looks into complaints, that installs party discipline. I mean, if you were going to appoint him anywhere uh, but that job, that, that may have fallen into the sort of uh, narrative that you are articulating. Do I expect the Prime Minister to be over every detail? No. Do I expect this Prime Minister to be over detail? Well, he never has been, and and people can make of that what they want. But it was a wrong move to put Chris in the Deputy Chief Whip. How much he knew about it, I don't know, obviously. But we've seen what's really troubling for the government is we've seen Cabinet Minister and Ministers stumble over this in interview after interview because, frankly, they have no satisfactory answers to what went on and it's going to lead to more turmoil in the party. It gives the rebels who want to give Boris Johnson more motivation to keep going. Meanwhile, the country is facing these huge difficulties 
and you know get rid of Chris he's gone get rid of him if they want to kick him out of the party no longer as an MP just move on but please come back to these things that matter to people five million people are not working in this country Mike who are called economically inactive yes They're, they are therefore in my opinion they, they many of those could be working we've got huge problems with the supply chains people not working I'd rather be hearing about what the government can help do to break that bottleneck than constantly what five four days now of this um, pincher affair it's bad it's it's a terrible look for Parliament he's clearly you know, um, by his own admission, behaved utterly abominably. Mm. But can we get some perspective now back on the big issues? Well, that's right. But also, when he was appointed, I don't remember everybody jumping up and down and saying, this is the craziest appointment that anybody's ever seen. What on not, earth is going on? What is he thinking? Not in public, Mike. But now I was racking, knowing I was coming to chat to you this morning, I was racking my brains because part of me seems to remember the appointment of the chief whip, who is now Chris Heaton-Harris, mm. I seem to remember considerable speculation that it might actually have been Chris Pincher, because he is a, 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 a an archboil uh, Boris loyalist. He'd been a whip before. And if you remember, there was a big delay around that appointment. So I, I hope I, my memory's not playing tricks with me. So um, then th there was no public debate about uh, all these allegations against him and so forth. But I, I it does beg the question, were people saying, do not appoint this man into the chief whip mm. job, and they arrived potentially at a compromise, which is where he ended up in Deputy Chief Whitrob, a bad appointment, undoubtedly. Well, that may tell you more about the inner workings of Westminster and why uh, it's not really in touch with ordinary people, because I believe that if those are conversations being had, they should be had in public, shouldn't they? I mean, maybe what we need um, is some kind of more transparent process, because that's what a lot of the backbenchers are complaining about, that actually this guy was promoted and appointed because he was Boris Johnson's mate. Now, I don't know if that's true, but the point is surely... Um, sort of grubby deals should not be done behind closed doors that nobody finds out about. Well, you know, again, I, I was speculating there and, and drawing on my memory. But look, the, the bottom line is he is a, he, he, he was the first to the ramparts to defend Boris Johnson every time he came under attack. Yeah. Boris Johnson is instinctively a loyal person He's to, to, to people around him. The problem is it's a very small coterie of individuals and look at the trouble it's landed him mm. in. Uh, so, yeah, you know, the, he is going to face, and we, we said this before, Mike, Boris Johnson is going to face crisis after crisis after crisis. That is the mode the Conservative Party are in at the moment. And for all the pleading of common sense to just crack on with the day job and start providing us some solutions that, so we're not filling up our bloody cut off, sorry about that, Don't filling worry. up our filling up our tanks yeah. of petrol over 110 quid or whatever it is, instead of focusing on something that I'm not trivialising, but I think we, we should just deal with now and move on. If he's going to face criminal charges, so be it. If he's going to be thrown out of the party, get on with it. He's out of the parliamentary mm. party. If they want to throw him out of the Conservative Party, period, and actually uh, uh, have him serve no longer as an MP, well, fine, all move on that stuff. Exactly, because I think that's the point. I think most people feel that this is just being, everything now is being used uh, as, a, as a sort of a whip, uh, to whip Boris Johnson with, if you'll pardon the, the, the expression. But at the same time, um, they also realise that this will stop Boris Johnson from doing anything, because every time he turns around, there's somebody else going, well, surely this is final, the final straw. There's been about 55 final straws that he has to walk away from. And at certain points... Um, if it becomes this, 
problematic, where you can't get to discuss any policy, you can't actually get anything done, then maybe he does have to go. Well, that that is the point. And you will hear his opponents in the Tory party talk about this. Now, you know, we've got coming up that something that will boggle people's minds, not unreasonably, we've got the 1922 Executive Committee elections. How's that to excite you on a Monday morning? <laughs> but actually, this is turning into a proxy war between Tories who support Boris Johnson and Tory MPs who don't support Boris Johnson. Next week, probably, will be the elections to the executive why is that important? Well, we're told we're going to see a range of pro-loyalist um, Johnson candidates putting up for the jobs. The old job I used to have, the, 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 the secretary of the, the 1922, things like that. Mm. And we're going to have those that want to change the rules so he has to face another leadership election coming up as well. That battle will be fought out over the next week or so. And, you know, there's even talk, a wild talk, I suspect, of threats emerging that they will deselect rebellious MPs. Mm. So the Tory party is just basically imploding in Parliament at a time when we don't need them to. And frankly, when the opposition is so weak, so pathetic, yeah. they could actually get a grip of things and move forward. Well, exactly. And I mean, we'll get on to the opposition in a moment. I'm going to ask you to stay with us for a second. We're talking to Nick Dubois. The bottom line for me is, Nick, only the Tory party could sort of destroy itself from within. You know, here's a party that got an 80-seat majority. They've managed to whittle that down to 75. I realise that's still plenty, and they've got plenty of room for manoeuvre. But only the Tories could actually begin to eat themselves. The feeding frenzy began on the inside, for heaven's sake. Uh, this is Talk TV. On DAB+, Plus, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV with you all the way through, of course, until a one o'clock. Sue says this, Mike, people have to be careful what they wish for. I would say that most of the Red Wall voters voted for Boris, not their little-known MPs. Our MP has hardly had time to unpack his pencil case before he was slating Boris. I think that's right. There is a problem out there, I think. We're talking to Nick Dubois, former Conservative MP. Uh, there is a problem out there with people who are in Parliament but haven't been there very long. I think there's also equally a problem, uh, Nick, with people who have been in Parliament too long and never the twain shall meet and there is this sense that there's a kind of secret society going on uh, behind the um, I was going to say lace curtains but they're not really lace curtains are they they're sort of behind the uh, uh, the, 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 the the very fine looking sort of frontage of the palace of Westminster and it seems to me that all people do there is gossip about each other uh, go for drinks parties in the evenings uh, and try and maneuver each other and to stab each other in the back I mean that's what it looks like from the outside well, Mike, you're, you're right about people being there too long and you're right about their people not being there long enough, particularly the Red Wall MPs, of course. Never forget, although this parliament's been going now, what uh, is it? Do you know, I'm losing track. It feels like a long time, but it's, it's three years, basically. Yeah. Two of those years, they weren't in parliament. Uh, and they also got elected with no real understanding of, if you like, the, uh, the, the, how the local p- politics can be, should be campaigned. Uh, how how you necessarily represent the seat. So they are in meltdown. Mm. The Red Bull seats are basically looking over their shoulder now. They've had wicked by-elections where they've seen the Tories get absolutely stuffed. They have four days of, of basically yet another, um, basically, sex scandal, um, are much more serious in many ways than those of the John Major era mm. uh, have been going on. They are in absolute meltdown. And because they are not very experienced, because they have really only spent about a year in Parliament since it's been getting back together, 
um, there is no sense of perspective in what is going on. So that is one large chunk of the Tory party that is in absolute meltdown. And um, uh, if you were in the tea rooms, you would probably uh, be hearing all sorts of conversations about leadership, about their prospects in seats, when you and I would much prefer the conversations to be focused on, you know, how are we going to sort out the airports issue? How, what, what are we actually doing about crime? Can we get the police doing their job? All those sorts of things. Uh, that are not happening. So uh, that explains, if you like, uh, the agitation in the air, which of course just fuels more problems that come out publicly. Mm. It won't be long, Mike, before we next see a spate of WhatsApp groups appearing in the press with comments that are either very anti-Boris or of course revealing more things and potentially more scandals. Yeah, because, you know, there's plenty more scandals, I'm sure, that we don't even know about. I mean, nobody talks very much about Patrick Grady, who's the sex pest from the SNP, uh, who's been kicked out of that party, and who now sits as an independent, hasn't actually resigned his seat from Glasgow North, right? He was suspended from Westminster for two days uh, over sex, sexual misconduct. Ian Blackford uh, tried to defend him. Uh, we've got the whole state of affairs with Claudia Webb, who still sits as an MP. We've got Keir Starmer waiting for his, uh, uh, his beer gate decision you know there's plenty of other scandals going on but everybody's obsessed with the one to do with the tory party it it it, it sells well they believe it sells newspapers i'm not so sure uh, I, I mean keir starmer is really this is this is once again where boris johnson might be lucky because this news agenda could shift at any time and it could shift to keir starmer who um uh, obviously faces the prospect that he might receive a fine, effectively be charged with breaking the rules over so-called beer gate. Mm. I understand, I don't know if it's true, that the police have even asked one of the witnesses to him drinking his bottle of beer and breaking the rules, whether he would testify in court. That's been reported today. So that does suggest that that we suddenly may be facing a leadership crisis in the Labour Party. Mm. And of course, that could come along at a very convenient time for Boris Johnson. He will wish it to happen before parliamentary recess breaks up at the end of this month so that it's Labour who have a summer of discontent. And honestly, they should be wishing Keir Starmer stays in his job. Yeah. It's absolutely hopeless. I mean, he did a lot of as a, as, as a big Brexit speech. Yeah. Uh, where he's not having spoken about Brexit for two years, where he's dodged it, never raised it. He's now talking about it. And his big idea is to say... We're going to stay with Brexit. Okay, that's that's well that's, done, Keir. But well done, Keir. Glad you got that. Right. But he's going to reform it, and he's going to reform it by introducing, trying to negotiate new agriculture rules. Well, that's going to set the world alight, mm. isn't it? You can see that. Who's he really talking to? He's talking to the uh, the fringe of his party. Um, and when I say fringe, I think it, I'm talking about more in quality than anything else, like Sadiq Khan, who desperately wants to drag us back into the EU. Right. He's trying to get his own party under control. He has nothing constructive to say, Keir Starmer. Uh, and, and honestly, the Tories must be begging the police uh, not to prosecute him. He's their best asset. Oh, he totally is. I mean, let's not forget as well, since we're on the subjects of uh, inquiries and investigations, both Keir Starmer and David Lammy under investigation by the parliamentary watchdog over things that they forgot to declare uh, that they got for free or whatever. Uh, And similarly, Sadiq Khan now being investigated after Grant Shapps accused him of electioneering uh, by announcing the opening of the Elizabeth line during the election campaign. So, you know, I mean, all the I mean, I, I don't really care about any of this stuff, but let's keep it on a fair playing field. And let's say it's not just the Tory party that needs investigating for all sorts of reasons. 
No, uh, look, um, they're, they're going to go on uh, raising inquiry. I think all you have to do to have it. I had an inquiry raised against me, by the way. Did you know? I now, did this- not know that. Otherwise, I would never have had you on the show. Obviously, Nick, that would have been uh, <laughs> prejudicial to any sort of future suggestions that you might have. <laughs> well, one one very grumpy Labour MP got cross with me over something I said about the NHS. You know, perhaps that it wasn't as brilliant as everyone said, and maybe we shouldn't just spend money on it. Got yeah. very cross with me and um, reported me to the speaker. Now, apparently, that became a massive inquiry. So what they do is they write a letter, okay, say that the speaker's looking into it, and it's a huge inquiry. In fact, the speaker turned around three days later and said, go away, this is absolute nonsense. Um, We're allowed to have different points of view in Parliament. Mm. Uh, and, And look, the new story then is, oh, there's an inquiry, and this is kind of what we're going to see more of. And honestly, it just tarnishes... At the end of the day, it just points to MPs looking inwards, not outwards, which Mm. is what we want them to do, don't we? Well, of course. And of course, as as we see today, we're going to talk about later on the show, there's now demonstrations going on uh, from the kind of road haulier's perspective about the cost of of, of petrol, the cost of fuel. The cost of living is still uppermost in most people's minds. You know, we keep hearing that Boris and Rishi Sunak are going to make a joint statement at some point. We've been hearing it now for about four or five weeks. They need to do something to make people's lives more affordable, don't they? Well, Churchill said it, action this day. Mm. You know, don't wait until a mini budget in October. People are hurting. The pain at the pumps is hurting. It's hurting everyone, by yeah. the way. It's not just a narrative where it's, 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 it, it may disproportionately affect those on lower incomes. Mm. I totally get that. But this is hurting. And the government are being seen not to do anything. Now, that's an unfair charge. Mm. They are doing things. But the fact of the matter is they're doing things that are going relatively unnoticed. Mm. If they want to win the next election, they have to show and convince people that they're on their side in this difficult time. And very visible measures are needed. The most visible would be the biggest contribution to cost of living that comes out of us is our taxes. That is what fuels, um, apart from anything else, inflation and uh, uh, the inflation figure when you've got high taxes on fuel. And of course, it affects our take home pay. You could reduce taxes and you'd start to show that people, that the government were on the people's side. And again, we'll talk about this later on in the show, but when you see the level of fraud that's going on inside government departments because they're not very good at checking out who they're giving free money to, you know, we already know they lost £5 billion, uh, to, you know, sort of start-up loans and furloughs and all that in the pandemic. We now learn that another £10 has gone south from people claiming universal ben- benefit that they shouldn't have been getting. I mean, who's in charge of the clattering train? Well, exactly. And this will be one government not talking to another. And the bottom line is um, we have got over five million people who are effectively economically inactive and many of them getting supported by benefits. And many of those are economically inactive effectively, not all, by the way, but effectively through having made a choice. That isn't good enough. We need people back at work. What is wrong with uh, um, asking people to go back to work and not, therefore, subsides, uh, surviving on uh, on benefits. Yeah, well, it's that's right. It's the challenges we face. Yeah, but you get called cruel, you get called evil, you get called, like, you know, you have no compassion for people who can't work. You know, they've also now just made it easier for people to throw a sickie because you now don't have to get a doctor's note. You can get one uh, from the bloke down the newsagents, practically. What I would tell you, Mike, is that uh, I grew up in the late 80s and ran my own business until 2009-10, I would not have the patience to run a business now because the balance between the employer relationship 
and protection for, if you like, what the government would describe as uh, workforce measures, um, that, that such as speeding up the number of days you can have off sick without having a doctor's note. Frankly, the balance now, I think, between employer and employee has shifted so far in favour of the employee that I would not have had the patience to deal with much of the bureaucracy and frustration that goes with running a business these no. days. I mean, you get the sense, don't you, Nick, that if you actually ask somebody to do something, it's a bit like going back to the old days of unionisation, where they go, sorry, you can't ask me to do that. I'm not doing that. I only do that on Tuesdays. And you go, yeah. OK, and then. And not everyone is like that, Mike, but you're absolutely right that the amount of money now spent on navigating to ensure you are doing things right so you cannot end up with maybe a minor misdemeanor turning into an expensive claim against you um, uh, it is huge. I, I don't think people quite understand the consequences of some of the decisions that have been mm. made. We were told, of course, that um, this government would tackle many of those things. No one, no sensible employer is going to give their employees a hard time. They want productive, happy employees. But the balance, in my opinion, now shifted so heavily in favour of employees. A small number of them can make life hell for some employers that I would not have gone back into business. And maybe when the government can stop worrying about um, some of these uh, trivial, well, sh shall we say some of these sensational important issues mm. but constantly having to um, defend themselves on those they can start to have a look at what would actually be the matters that are affecting the economic growth of this country yeah absolutely very well said nick dubois great to talk to you thank you very much indeed nick dubois there will be back here at talk tv of course uh, in due course very very shortly uh, how about this from andrew this is the new way of dealing with politics if whoever replaced boris was a brexiteer they would also be unable to do anything um and pete says i feel i've missed out on lots of government's free money how stupid of me to have worked all my life and paid my taxes where did it all go so horribly wrong well that's a very good point i'm beginning to feel the same way pete i feel like i'm the only one uh, that's in a one-way relationship with the government i.e i just give them loads of money lots of other people seem to be in receipt of loads of money from the government I'm not one of them, I'm afraid. Let's talk to Terry, who's in Newcastle. Hi, Terry. Good morning, mate. How are you? Very well, sir. What can I do for you? Uh, it's just on the Chris Pincher affair. Yes. Right. His job was, what a part of his job was, pastoral care of MPs. Yes. Which means that if you've got a problem at work, he's like an ear job, look. Right. Sexual or allegation. Just, just imagine... If he had done that against women in the Carlton Club last... Right, if he had done that and Boris Johnson knew he was a bit handsy. Yeah. And I, I, that's all I wanted to say, basically, yeah. because I know what the answer is. Well, I know what the answer is as well. And I also know what the answer is. Had they, the, 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 the victims of his, um, his sort of Carlton Club soiree been women, it would have been a very different conversation. We, people were kind of not taking it quite so seriously, partly because, I suppose, we don't actually know the details of what he did. And that's the other problem. If you knew the details of what he did, I think you could make a much, a much better judgment, a much easier judgment. But I do remember once being told by someone who worked for Theresa May, um, and she, let's not forget, is the woman who hired him after he was already have, having forced, uh, forced himself to stand down because of another incident with an Olympic rower in a room where he was described as the pound shop Harvey Weinstein, right? Beggar's belief. Apparently, she said, can't they just keep their trousers on? I mean, it's not much to ask, is it? If you're a Tory MP or any sort of MP, just keep your trousers on, for heaven's sake. Let's talk to Anne Whittacombe, former prisons minister, of course, a woman who knows a thing or two about uh, 
MP's behaviour. And a very good morning to you. Good morning to you too. I'm, I'm desperately trying to get away from this story about uh, Mr Pincher, uh, but it keeps sort of coming back, as it were, to pinch you on the backside. But uh, shall we move on and talk about yes. something far more important, which to me yes. uh, is this absolute and utter scandal of 22,000 suspects roaming around, not actually on the run, because they don't need to be on the run, apparently sitting at home waiting to be arrested. Yeah. It's one scandal after another with the police at the moment. I mean, let me say right at the outset, there are some very, very brave policemen, very dedicated to the job. Some of them die on duty. We know that. Yes. But the fact is that the, the mass of the police now uh, are, are just not focused on crime. Uh, they arrest street creatures. They come to your door to check your thinking. Uh, they uh, enforce all sorts of politically correct rules. They're even uh, in some forces uh, um, lined up to oppose wolf whistling. Uh, and yet the really serious stuff, the stuff for which they are supposed to be doing their job, the um, burglary and some of these people who are loose, uh, you know, the allegations are much worse. It's even a murderer there. Uh, or an alleged murderer, rather. Yeah. Uh, so, well, they've certainly been uh, accused of murder, which means that, yeah. that they should be uh, at least in, in custody in some way, shape or form. Uh, absolutely. And and you know, the fact that the police do not bother to chase this sort of thing up when they're chasing up all manner of trivia and disporting themselves at politically correct causes and mm. parades and all the rest of it, uh, they've just lost their way completely. And I think the big question that the... Um, the Home Secretary should be asking is, where does this start? And I suspect, actually, Hendon Police College. I suspect they're being trained to give the wrong priorities. Yeah. Well, it comes to something, doesn't it, when a a national newspaper, the Daily Mail in this case, actually found some of these people by simply knocking on the door and going, hello, are you so-and-so? You are actually required to attend court. And they went, well, nobody's told us or nobody's come for us. I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? Well, I mean, very specific questions should be asked. I mean, where that has happened, you know who the alleged criminal is, you know his address, you know he's there. So my next question is, have the police been round now? That's my next question. Yeah, exactly right. But we already know, Anne, that the justice system is in some form of turmoil, don't we? We've now got a barrister yeah. strike, second barrister strike uh, in a fortnight. This time it's three days, I think, instead of one. Um, that's not going to help matters. But one of the things that they say is a problem... Uh, is that in the criminal justice system, there's simply not enough time, there's not enough court space, there's not enough courts open to even handle all of the criminal cases that need to be looked at on a day-to-day basis. Oh, all that is quite true. And, of course, it's been vastly exacerbated by COVID. COVID. I was myself involved in a trial which was postponed not once but twice, the first time because some jurors had it, second time because the judge had it, uh, and nothing happens during that period. You know, the, the trial cannot go ahead. So that has made it worse. But even before COVID, uh, justice in this country uh, involved enormously heavy delays, still does. uh, And I suspect until we approach this with a will, um, it's going to continue to do that. Now, there is a problem. You can't just go out onto the street and hire people as barristers. You've got to make sure that you're training enough. Mm. You've got to make sure you're training enough solicitors. You've got to make sure you're promoting enough judges. Uh, You've got to do all those things. Uh, and, of course, then there's the underlying support that you need from the police, that they'll produce the right people at the right time in court. Yeah. And an awful lot of the cases apparently collapse, um, or at least are not heard when they're meant to be heard, because either there isn't a barrister available or the police officer in in, uh, in question doesn't turn up. You know, there's an awful lot of 
problems, it seems to me, that, that are based purely around inefficiency. Uh, absolutely, and have been for a very long time, mm. a very, very long time. And, uh, and it, it needs it needs a root and branch overhaul, but it's going to have to be medium to long term because of the issues I've just identified. You know, you can't just whistle up practising barristers. No, of course. But we seem to have this root and branch reform requirement in almost every aspect of public sector life now. Yeah, you know, yeah, the NHS, yeah. the NHS yeah. needs it. Education, education. Yes. Absolutely, everything needs it. And what what have governments been doing for the last 10, 15 years? They have been being politically correct. They've been trying to save money. They've been hoping bluntly that when the thing implodes, the opposition will be in power. Uh, They just haven't got on with it. The NHS is a classic example of that. We've known for decades. I mean, I said in 1998, when I was Shadow Health Secretary, that we've got a system that was founded on a completely wrong assumption of declining demand. We've got rocketing demand. So we've got a, a system set up uh, on a completely wrong premise. And we have done absolutely nothing about it. And I said that in 98, and people had said it before me. No courage. They're afraid if you talk about the NHS, it'll be electoral suicide. It will provoke strikes. You know, it'll provoke an awful lot of accusations that the Tories wanted to privatise the service or something. Mm. No courage. No guts. That is what is at the root of all these failures. If you look at education, A-levels nowadays, getting an A-star, it means virtually nothing because it's not set against a grade, it's set against a cohort and how many people are performing better. Uh, And actually, the proof that A-levels are worth having will be when far fewer people get the top grades. That will be proof that they're exacting exams. It's almost as though, Anne, um, you and I are the only sensible people left, you know, because this kind of doctrine of fairness has killed Britain. Because you can't make it equal for everybody. Everybody's life isn't going to be the same. Everybody isn't going to be as successful as everybody else. Just get used to it. And what's more out there in the big wide world, you know, there's no doubt about that. Uh, if you don't give satisfaction to an employer, if, if, if you don't come up to scratch, that employer will get rid of you. He won't say, oh, dear, it's not fair. Mm. Uh, you know, we must stop the people who are doing well doing so well because it's not fair on the others. The education system now is based very much on that. Mm. It really is unfortunate. And finally, uh, we'll just go back to Westminster and Westminster politics. Boris Johnson now um, appears to be assailed on all sides. You know, his own party has already suggested that uh, he should move on and they should find somebody else. Do you think he's finally in the sort of the last chance saloon? Finally, the last chance saloon. Do you think he'll last? Well, I know that he shouldn't be in the last chance saloon. And I know that what that party should be thinking about now, and thank God it's no longer my party, what that party should be thinking about now is winning the next election. Mm. And it ain't going to do that if it breaks up into factions and squabbles and tries to shoot the general every single time something goes wrong. So it's time for that party to be a cohesive force again. Do I think it's going to be? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It is throwing away the next election. Steve Baker, you're throwing it away. Andrew Bridgen, you're throwing it away. And you might actually undermine Brexit as a result. Mm. William Hay, shut up. You know, you came in for an awful lot of criticism. People like me supported you with absolutely minute loyalty throughout. Now do that for your successor and you, Michael Howard. A whole lot of you, shut up. Brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. Well said, Anne. I think a lot of people will be absolutely behind you on that. Terrific to speak to you as ever. Thank you very much indeed. Anne Whittingham's column in the Daily Express, of course, later on this week. Um, What a magnificent speech there. Just shut up. Do it. Do what she says. 
edgy talk, plain talk, unrivaled talk. Mike Graham, the only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On the app, on your mobile, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is Monday, of course. It's the start of another week. The day looks reasonably good, actually. The sky is quite blue. There's not many clouds in it. Uh, It's the beginning of something, perhaps, but who knows where it will end. I've been talking in the first hour about uh, the ridiculous nature of Westminster politics, where everybody, but everybody, is singularly obsessed uh, with what the Prime Minister knew, when he knew it, whether or not uh, this bloke called Pincher was doing a lot of pinching before he got the job that Theresa May gave him, whether then uh, he started to object to other people's pinching. It all starts to get a bit ridiculous. I'm much more convinced and concerned about 10 billion quid going missing uh, from the universal credit budget because people have fraudulently removed it from the government. They don't seem to know what on earth they're doing. 2,000 people also uh, who are sort of on the run but not on the run haven't been arrested by police even though they're wanted for crimes like murder, rape and assault. They're still sitting around watching Netflix at home. Nobody's going around to arrest them because the police haven't got the the possibility of doing so. Extraordinary. Peter Hitchens is here with us in this hour. We're going to talk a great deal uh, about the cannabis debate because there was lots going on about that over the weekend, of course. A big report in the Mail on Sunday about the state of play in California since they actually did uh, make marijuana a legal drug. And also we'll talk a bit about uh, the shooting over in Denmark and uh, another case it would seem of somebody on antipsychotic drugs. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Peter, a very good morning good to morning. you. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Before we start on the cannabis conversation, which was a fascinating piece uh, in the mail on Sunday at the weekend, let's talk a little bit about this breaking news from Denmark. Three dead, four in critical condition uh, after a mass shooting uh, at a shopping mall in Copenhagen. We don't know too much about uh, the 22-year-old who's been arrested, but they say he has mental health issues. That's been mentioned, though. Of course, you need to wait. I think I always always take you waiting until you get the details of Mm. these things. But this is what uh, many of my colleagues don't do so if it's if it happens on the western side of the Atlantic yeah it's always attributed to the absence of gun control yes if it happens on the eastern side of the Atlantic where there is strict gun control it's always attributed to Islamist terrorism yeah now I'm not saying that an absence of gun control has no influence over the the, the matter mm. or that uh, Islamist terrorism doesn't happen but what I am saying is that, that these events often do have something else in common which is that the perpetrator turns out to have been taking some sort of mind-altering drug, yeah. often marijuana, yeah. sometimes antidepressants, and sometimes steroids. But this is it, it's extra- the reason why I go on and on about this is there used to be much less violent crime in our society, mm. and it, every violent crime that took place used to be quite heavily studied by mm. the media. Now it isn't because there's so much of it. Yeah. But this is one small subset of violent crime which is heavily studied by the media, and you can look at it, and over and over again the same thing is there. And I say, why do we not have an inquiry into every violent crime Mm. to see if there is some correlation between the use of mind-altering drugs and violent crime? Because if there is, we need to act about it rather than going off every time on another wild goose chase about arms control in the US or another wild goose chase about the whole thing having been allegedly mm. ordered by some bearded lunatic yeah. in, a, in a cave in Afghanistan. I mean, it, un- it may be something else that's yeah. causing all this. And unusually, unusually anyway. 
very quickly. The, the, the Denmark authorities have said this is not a terrorism incident. It is unusual, and generally they reach for that. Certainly our, um, our authorities reach for it, even when it becomes ridiculous. I mean, there was a case of, a few years ago of a guy who, who tried to stab somebody at a tube station. Mm. He, he had, his, his relatives had tried to turn him in mm. because they were afraid he was so mad for yeah. marijuana use. He actually genuinely believed, and this, he said this to many people who examined him, that Tony Blair was his guardian angel. Right. And yet, yet the, a lot of the legal system still treated him as if he was some kind of serious terrorist mm. threat when he was obviously out of his mind. Yeah. And there is determination to believe that it's, a, that it's terrorism rather than anything else which diverts people from even addressing what it, what it might really be. Yes. I mean, they certainly seem to think that he was under the treatment of some kind of um, antipsychotic medication, which um, they're quoting him as saying is something called ketiapine. I'm not sure if that's well, how you pronounce it. Well, I don't it. know. I mean, ketiapine? What, the thing is, how, what, why was he mentally ill in the first place? Yeah. And this is where we, we, we can mention my colleague Eve Simmons' extraordinary yes. report from California in the Mail on Sunday yesterday, where she went to examine the, the, the state of affairs after some years of... Mm semi-legalization, first of all, under the guise of medical marijuana and now pretty much total legalization. Yeah. And one of the things that, uh, that is quite plain is that people are becoming mentally ill after mm. using uh, marijuana. The other thing is that the great promise that the legalizers still have the nerve to make that if you legalize marijuana in your society, uh, you will get rid of the criminal dealers and mm. criminal gangs. In fact, I think there is still more illegal trade in marijuana yes. in California years after legalization yeah. took place. And her point about that was that because of the fact that it is sort of legal and therefore registered, the, the illegal forms of it come in sort of unregulated areas uh, where they can sell it for less money. Right? Of course, they do. immediately something is legalized, it, it gets taxed. Mm. And therefore, immediately there will be, in this country, there's very big markets for illicitly distilled alcohol mm. and, and smuggled cigarettes. They're yeah. both legal, uh, but th that doesn't stop people engaging in smuggling mm. and, and, and illicit distilling. Because once you legalize something, these the, the taxation yeah. and regulation uh, make it open up another window for the illegal market. So yes. the idea, it, it, they still keep saying it. The legalizers. You'll hear that if you listen to a legalizer, any say, well, of course, if we if we legalize it, it will enable us to regulate it mm. and keep it under control. It won't be sold to children anymore, and it'll be much safer. Well, this yeah. is actually proven rubbish. Yes. in every jurisdiction from from Colorado uh, to Canada mm. uh, to California, where it's been legalized, and the numbers it remains a, a huge illegal yes. market. And the numbers uh, that she quoted from, in terms of uh, your admissions to hospital and admissions to mental health. Um, centres by uh, the result of uh, long-term use of marijuana were quite staggering. I mean, they it's, were quite, quite increased on what they had been. Well, yes, you can't... There's still no actual proof of causation here. Mm. I have to stress this because people sometimes accuse me of claiming that there is. Mm. But there is, I think, enough of a correlation. And let's face it, if you take a strong mind-altering drug and you become mentally ill, it's, it's, it's not difficult to work out what the connection might be. The correlation is now so strong that we are where we were in the mm. early 50s when Richard Doll uh, first started saying, look, cigarette smoking is obviously linked with lung cancer. Mm. And it took, what, 30 years after Easily. that before government took serious uh, efforts yeah. to do anything about it. Yeah, absolutely right, probably more. I mean, I was in California a couple of years ago because uh, my, my son lives there. And funnily enough, I've got a friend who used to run a vineyard in sort of um, 
sort of northern, um, well, I suppose the middle of California, sort of Sacramento area, um, yeah. just south of there. Um, and he's given up the wine business and now runs a, a marijuana farm because it's actually much more lucrative. Well, the margins, he, the margins. He gave me the greater. figures, and and now they've built these. Um, they've got technology now where instead of having you know a basic farm that's on ground level only, they've actually built these kind of marijuana towers, if you like. And what they do is they hydroponically grow several floors. They can lock it up so it's more secure. He was telling me he's going to make probably in the first year of production alone about twenty million dollars. Yeah, well, the hydroponic the hydroponic cultivation, of course, means that you mean you, you, you take out much less space. Yeah, because it has, it's, it's huge amounts of it happen illegally in this yeah. country. There are enormous numbers of of, of marijuana farms mm. all over this country. But you don't. What I'm saying is, you so, don't need much actual acreage. You don't. They build upwards. They, they're, 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 they're in houses. In yeah. church. Sometimes they're next to, to, to recently closed police stations. Mm. Uh, they are. They're, they're everywhere, and they, the the police find out about them because of the very heavy use of electricity. Mm. That's the only. Well, do you remember there was a great picture? I think a couple of years ago there was a snowfall somewhere, yes. um, and there was one house in the middle <laughs> of the street the snow, where there was no snow on the roof, yeah. and they went, "Oh, look, there's yeah. where they're growing some marijuana." No, but it's it's it, it, it's huge. Yeah. And if if marijuana were legalised, it would remain huge. Yes. And so, I mean, I one of the senses I had, and certainly when I was walking around Hollywood and whatever, I mean, the smell was, it was just constant. Yeah. Um, and in her piece, she wrote about the poison from marijuana that people suffer now. And it may well be that it's not just people who inhale it deliberately, but it might be some who inhale it by accident. I suppose it's possible. Um, I, I just think the, the, the damage from the, the direct damage uh, that appears to be... Uh, being suffered by people who, who do do directly use it is extraordinary, and mm. it's a, it's a fascinating and very well researched yeah. and extremely powerfully written piece which everybody should read. It's annoyed the, the dope lobby like anything right. on, on social media. Tremendous abuse because mm. it obviously of hurts, hurts them. Right. Uh, but the I, what I call big dope, which is the successor to big tobacco. Mm. I mean, big tobacco. Everybody hates big tobacco because it was a, a wicked group of people trying to make money out capitalists. of capitalists. Well, but trying to make money out of human misery. Yes, but of course, dope uh, dealers. But the dope lobby, which is exactly the same now, right. in, in many cases actually has big tobacco companies joining it yes. now because they see an opportunity. This is still popular with yeah. the kind of people who, who despise big tobacco. They're going to have to work out sooner or later which side are they on in this. Are they, are they on the side of, of, of rapacious, greedy business? Or are they, are they on the side of human yeah. kindness? You can't be on both mm. in the marijuana. And of course, um, in even London probably these days, you've got more chance of being arrested for smoking a cigarette than you have for smoking a joint. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, what what occurred to me when we were looking at these huge numbers of people who hadn't been arrested is that the thing I, that, that, that constantly is on my mind here, that Julian Assange, who's not been convicted of anything, sits in horrible conditions mm. in, a, in a cell in Belmarsh, while huge, huge numbers of people who commit uh, real crimes are not being arrested, prosecuted, convicted, or imprisoned. No. Apart from any other aspect of the Assange case, mm. this is an outrage, and people should just be much more cross about it yes. than they are. And what's happening with that case? Because well, it's not he, clear. He, I, he has, it was ruled that he could not be uh, kept here, and that he will be extradited. But there's, there are more appeal stages, mm. and it's a question, first of all, whether I think the appeal court hears a new appeal, and then if, if that doesn't go... Uh, this is a rare case where I would say that, 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 that I, I'm, I'm glad of this uh, extra stage. It could even end up at the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, mm. a court which I don't have much time for 
But given the failure of, 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 the, of the British justice system to operate as it should have done and to say, look, this is obviously a political case, it shouldn't proceed, mm. uh, then maybe that is a, the, the, uh, unusually one, one would welcome the fact that there is some... Well, it'll be rather it. ironic, won't it, if they can't stop the deportation of Julian Assange, but they can stop the deportation of any number of very... Well, there again, you, ha- you have another uh, paradox waiting to happen. <laughs> but in any case, I mean, the, the, anybody who has a, a, a pen and some paper... Uh, should be writing to their members of parliament mm. and to uh, still, I think, to the Home Secretary saying, "Look, why are we doing this? Yeah. This is a, uh, the United States may have been embarrassed by Julian Assange, but as far as we know, embarrassing a, a foreign government is not a crime, and uh, he shouldn't be being dragged off for this." No, I think that's right, and I think even most people, and I've become one of them, who have no time necessarily for him or for what he did. It still seems incredibly unfair. No, I think you know, the other day, Andrew Neil, who's uh, by no means the, the sort of person that, who moves in the Assange circles, yeah. he said, look, this is wrong. Yeah. And, and I think people should pay more attention to that. When a journalist understanding of Andrew Neil mm. says this, this should not happen, yeah. I was hoping that a lot more people in my trade would mm. come out and say, yes, uh, Andrew Neil is right. This extradition should not go ahead. And we, all journalists, in fact, anybody who believes in freedom of speech, uh, should be very powerfully against it. Mm, indeed. Pity Sorry to bring it in, but I... No, no, I was, not at all. I, I just you should felt never I, I, no. I, I, I just, just Listen, this is the every place, opportunity. This is absolutely the place where you can bring it in because we will talk about everything here, and that's what we do. That's what we're famous for. Peter Hitchens is here. I'm going to ask him a little bit about Elvis Presley coming up next uh, because, of course, he's seen the film, I believe, um, and he's going to tell us what it's like and what it's about and also the effect that Elvis Presley actually had on Western civilization. Uh, This is Talk TV. I'm Mike Graham. We'll take more of your calls as well. 0344 499 1000. Does anybody in this government know what they're doing? Answers on a postcard. (laughs) Talk Radio. Reach for the story. Radio with grown-up opinions. Don't get angry. Get on Talk Radio. The home of common sense. On DAB+. On the app. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. With you, of course, all the way through the week. We are here uh, until one o'clock. Ian Collins will follow. I'm in uh, later on as well tonight on the talk uh, with a panel of people talking about the matters, the things that matter to everybody out there uh, in the big wide world. Um, My last question was, does anybody in the government know what they're doing? Peter Hitchens is here. Uh, Obviously, um, a good opportunity to ask you. They, They just seem completely and utterly wrapped up now in this kind of internal circle of doom, don't they? Well, is there any politics left in this country? I don't think so. Or is it just a a soap opera? Yeah. I I remember realising after I'd spent however many years at Westminster it was that I spent, that I'd been almost totally unaware while there of any of the legislation that was actually passing Mm. through Parliament. We weren't paying... It was all who's Mm. up, who's down, who's in, who's out. Yes. Gossip. And politics in this country is, is in my view, both over-covered and there's too much of it in yeah. the papers, and undercovered in that very little gets out about what's actually... When do you hear anything, for instance, about the new education bill? Well, interesting you say that, because I was down in the House of Lords, because I was invited very kindly by Claire Fox to, to lunch one day, and we walked through the, t- the room where they put all the papers out, you know, and there was, there was uh, dutifully somebody sitting there, and in front of them was this large oak desk yeah. in, in which there were piles and piles of papers, and I actually picked one up, which was the education bill. Um, yeah. And it was kind of amendments to it and all that. And I suddenly thought, someone, I started reading it, and I thought, I haven't heard anything about this. No, it's a huge bill. You know, it's, it's a it, massive it, bill, it, and nobody's really talking about it. No, because people don't, because education is an area which has is, is, is somewhat disappeared in mm. sort of private. Every school now, almost every, not, not, not yet every, but the government wants every school to be a so-called academy. Yeah. 
and the, the, they, they cease really to be answerable for academies once they become academies, mm. and yet they still fund them. Yeah. It's a very strange arrangement. And, and trying to find out what's going on inside any school, a, a public, um, that's to say, a publicly owned, or fee charging yeah. is extremely difficult. You really want to know what's going oh, on, yeah. and what your children. Well, are you wrote a bit to. about this at the weekend, yeah. didn't you? And the whole brainwashing aspect of what our young children are being taught. Because you're right. I mean, as a parent, until they say something at home, you don't really know. No, and, and if you assume they're being educated in the way that you that, that you were roughly, and then you you ask, what do you what do you think about Oliver Cromwell? Mm. Uh, I, you get which side was he on? Yeah, uh, they don't know. And there's a there's a Tory MP complaining today, quite rightly, that, that the only history that's taught is basically Henry VIII and Hitler. Mm. Uh, everything else in between is just a vast. Desert well, I was of quite surprised to find out that my 15 year old was being taught about the Vietnam War, which is fine. You know, it's interesting, but I'm not quite sure why. Because why would you choose the Vietnam War above? I agree, it's, it's a fascinating war. If I'm reading Max, it Max Hastings' book about it at the moment, and I'm not against people knowing about uh. it. It's not where you start no. in trying to find out what, what, what do they know about Suez, for instance. Right. Well, they don't teach that. If people, if more people had known about Suez, we, would have, we wouldn't have had Iraq. And do you start. think that's more about the kind of frightened um, fear of empire and fear of talk about what Britain used to be and how it used to run different parts of the world? It may be. I just think it's a general it, it, it's a, it's a general disdain for any knowledge of the past at all. The new elite doesn't want people to know about the past. Mm. It wants it wants people to think that the world they live in is the best it, it's ever been and yes. the best it could possibly be. Right. There's that great scene in in 1984 where, where Winston Smith goes into the pub where they won't, there's an old geezer there trying to buy a pint of beer and they won't serve him mm. a pint. And this turns into a conversation in which Winston Smith tries to get the old geezer to sell him what the world was like before the revolution. Right. It's impossible. Yeah. Nobody, Nobody can, knows. Nobody knows. Nobody has a clue. Everything's been wiped. Yeah. Which brings us nicely to Elvis and Elvis yeah. Presley because he sort of operated in a very different time, did he not? He did. And I think, I, I get mocked for this, but I think he had as big a revolutionary effect as Matt Sator or Lenin. Yeah. I think that he changed the world. Mm. Uh, I was influenced in this. A fantastic book came out while I was in the USA by David Halberstam, who was a great writer, mm. called The Fifties. Okay. There's a long chapter in it about Elvis, which stuck very much in my mind, about mm. the, the revolution in public behavior, which which came after he went on The Ed Sullivan Show, which was the great, the, yeah. the, the big TV uh, Sunday night right. show of the time. And he was suddenly, he became sort of respectable. But the effect that he had and oddly enough, Frank Sinatra had had this a few years earlier. Mm. The effect that he had on young women, mm. the screaming. Uh, and, and, and it was before the see, Beatles as well. And the Beatles it? had it as well. And it's really odd mm. because you, can't, you, you look at those, those the, I think, the Shea Stadium concert yeah. that the Beatles had. You, nobody who was there could possibly have heard a word you, they sang. No, you couldn't. It's nothing but screaming. Yeah. Now, this is, it, it seems to me to be an utterly understudied yeah. area of human behavior. Right. What was going on there? Yes. And also, if you look through some of the documentaries that have been done uh, about the Beatles, certainly, which I know a bit more about than Elvis, where there was the bit where the sort of south of America turned on the Beatles because John Lennon had said that they were bigger than Jesus Christ. Yeah. And, of course, the, sort of the, or the, the Bible Belt revolted and were burning records. They were actually burning Beatles albums they in were. these huge bonfires saying, you know, these are people who belong to the devil. And it was quite remarkable. Well, it, it was, and it, but it, and it, I tend to think that, that there is something. I used to people. It's a, I was I was in the sixties. Yeah. People ask, well, what happened? And I used to joke that they put something in the water. Yeah. But in fact, they put something in the air. They, they actually they, did put something. in the water. Was it fluoride in the water? Cumulative, well, yeah, but the cumulative <laughs> effect 
of of the of the music of that era on people's minds mm. was I think gigantic. Mm. It changed the way people thought about so many things. It changed the whole mood. Yeah. It was as if the climate had changed. Well, it brings you back to Vietnam as well, because well, there's does, no question yeah. that the, the, the anti-Vietnam movement was entirely started by, by pop stars, wasn't it? Well, Pretty yeah, much. Yeah, there were, there, there were other elements in it. But the, thing, the great thing about it was that if you were against the Vietnam War, you were in the right. Yeah. And you could feel you were in the right. And you, you, your, your elders and the government and everybody who supported it or, 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 didn't, or didn't condone it yeah. as much as you did was wrong. But and that's it. it. And I think marvelous. for me, it was the first time that people who had otherwise just done what their parents told them had actually said, no, we disagree with you, and we're yeah. not doing that. And they turned out, as with Nixon, they turned yeah. out to be right. These these were these 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 were bad people doing stupid things. Yes. and it was it, it again it, it changed matters utterly. But this this business of the screaming, mm. I would really love to see somebody do some work. Yeah. Why did they scream? Yes. What was it triggered the screaming? Yeah. Uh, because I guess it, it could, it, Frank Sinatra never n- n- never wheeled his hips or did all those no. things, but he still got that. And mm. the, the, the Beatles they didn't they didn't do the Elvis thing either, but the Elvis effect was obviously enormous on yeah. what had previously been quite a strongly repressed Protestant Christian society, and now actually isn't. Yes, I think it's it's it's, it's extraordinary how little. And perhaps that was the Attention beginning. Attention people yeah. pay to these things. And funnily enough, Elvis himself, as you pointed out in your piece, was not particularly radical. Not at all. Politically speaking, he was probably quite right-wing. He was a bit of a gun nut. Uh, he quite enjoyed... He quite um, liked Nixon, I think. Yeah, I think he did. Um, but I'm reminded of that line by Bob Dylan, your sons and your daughters are beyond your command, which is kind of where it all yeah. went. And, the they, and, and they were, and of course this is also partly because of what they were being taught in the, the schools and colleges they were yeah. taught to by then, which parents knew nothing of. Yes. A lot of people expressed surprise that you actually went to the cinema at all to see this film. Well, there you are. I, mean, right. I, I, I love the cinema. I think it's one of my favourite... Uh, and how was the experience? Was you didn't have Long. To, was it? Very long. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a very comfortable cinema. And you're I right can't in. see you with a big box of popcorn sitting. No, there. You, you'd be right not to see me with that. <laughs> I, I did. I did have a large glass of Rioja to get me through it. Did you? Yes. What a civilized place. It's. I know this is increasingly common. I, some of the people in in the auditorium actually had meals brought to them. Really? Yeah. You see, I've missed out on all this. I haven't been to the cinema for a while because I used to go with my younger kids. And then promptly fall asleep, normally speaking, because they'd be going a three-hour film about superheroes, yes. which didn't really do it for me. Nope. So I don't really go anymore. But maybe you're... Maybe, well, so you recommend they, the Elvis They, they understand that people have the, uh, the alternative of sitting at home on their own sofa with... Uh, with with, with a, a very sofa, large TV screen. And a very large bottle of wine in many cases as well. So they yes. need to substitute for this. Yeah. And they try quite hard. Okay. The cinema experience is not what it was. No. Well, I must, I must, uh, I must explore it. Well, listen, great to see you, as ever. Thank you very much indeed. Peter Hitchens will be back, of course, next week um, at uh, the same time because uh, we have always got great matters to discuss. Coming up, uh, we're going to be talking to Michael Simmons, who's a data journalist at The Spectator. He's got some rather interesting uh, stories to tell, not least about the mystery of all the people who have not really been accounted for who have died at home during and post the COVID crisis. This is Talk TV. I'm Mike Graham. You know what to do. This is the only place to hear these kinds of conversations. Nobody else is doing it, which is good for us, actually. So keep listening. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. This is, of course, Talk TV here with you all the way through until one o'clock. Ian Collins uh, coming up then. Dr. David Bull uh, is doing drive from four o'clock. And then from seven, uh, it's the news desk with Tom Newton Dunn. Uh, it's Piers Morgan, of course, at eight o'clock. And from nine, uh, it is me on the talk 
with a whole host of special guests. We'll be talking about all the big stories of the day, followed by Daisy McAndrew, of course, at 10 o'clock. We've been talking about a great many things this morning, including, of course, the nonsense of the 22,000 um, fugitives on the run who actually have been charged with some quite serious crimes, but who are still on the missing list. Nobody knows exactly where they are, but the Daily Mail managed to find them. They went to their home addresses and knocked on the door. Hello, uh, is Bill Bloggs there? Yes. Uh, you're wanted for murder? Yes. Why have you not come to court? Well, nobody's told me. Why have the police not been arresting me? Um, well, we can't tell you that. Apparently they've got too many other things to do. They haven't got time to arrest anybody who's wanted for murder. What? Are you serious? Also, we'll be talking about the £10 billion that seems to have gone south from the universal uh, benefit business. People who have not been supposedly in receipt of it should not have been given it, but they were given it. Now we're going to talk about another story uh, which has been quite surprising, I think, to an awful lot of people uh, over the last few days. Michael Simmons, a data journalist at The Spectator, he's written a fantastically interesting piece about why are thousands of people dying at home? Is Britain really back to normal? Are people actually frightened to go to hospital? Michael, a very good morning. Welcome. Morning. Thanks. Thank you very much indeed. It's a fascinating piece that you've written. We heard a lot about the phrase excess deaths during the pandemic. And one of the things that we were told by, um, you know, messes um, um, from Sage and and various, you know, people standing next to um, Boris Johnson at these press conferences, that, you know, excess deaths were very much in excess of where they should have been. People were dying of COVID all over the place. But what they weren't telling us was what was happening really in the home setting. So what have you found? So, um, as you say, Mike, um, throughout the COVID pandemic, people have become used to excess deaths, which is a measure of how many more deaths there have been compared to how we'd expect in a normal year. Mm. Um, And what I found was when you look at excess deaths, um, comparing people who died in their own homes and people who died in hospital and care homes, so far this year, in hospital and care homes, there's actually been around 11,000 less deaths than would have been expected. But in um, homes across Britain, so people's own homes, um, there's been about 20,000 more. Yes. Um, and that's kind of worried some of the um, doctors and people that I spoke to for the piece because um, normally it, it kind of gives the idea that maybe are people not, our diagnosis is not being picked up, are people not going into hospital where perhaps they should have? You know, why has this sudden rise um, in, in excess home deaths occurred? And the percentage increases that you quote are quite high, aren't they? Figures from Scotland, you're saying, found infant deaths at their highest in a decade. 3.9 babies died for every 1,000 born, 26% up on the year before. Um, and, and, and also just general deaths at home are up 36% on pre-pandemic level. Do you think it tells the story that people are just not going to hospital or can't get into hospital? Yeah, so I think there's kind of three issues that are kind of obviously at play. Um, The first is that um, people are struggling to access hospitals. We know that there's still record waiting lists. Um, The NHS's own modelling for people on their one-year waiting list uh, has actually gone above their worst-case scenario. So there's big queues to actually get in. Um, The other side is kind of maybe not necessarily a bad thing, maybe this is a good change, is that some doctors who do end-of-life care um, are talking to their patients and saying, you know, maybe it's actually better to stay at home when you're right at the end of your life because you can be surrounded by your family and mm. your, loves, your loved ones. But what concerned me the most is um, I spoke to a doctor who uh, he'd gone out to see a patient who he suspected of having um, a heart attack. And the patient had become so concerned and worried by the years of messaging we've had about the risk of coronavirus that he was just flat out refusing to go into hospital because mm. he was scared he would catch the virus when you're in there. 
There's also still hospitals with kind of draconian visiting restrictions. So people are, I think, you know, rightly reluctant to go into hospital in case they get there and they're almost imprisoned and yeah. their family can't visit them. And um, so I think this is the, the real kind of dangerous side of it, that people are scared to seek treatment mm. that, you know, would otherwise save them. No, absolutely right. I mean, I get messages all the time from people and people who call in because we talk about the NHS on this show an awful lot. And many hospitals still have never ret- returned to sort yep. of pre-pandemic conditions so that, you know, you're only, there's still places where you're only allowed in one at a time. Sometimes only one person can visit somebody who's in there, uh, regardless of how many times in a week. It's only one named person or, you know, there was one hospital that somebody told me about where only one visitor actually was allowed into the building at a time. So everybody else who had come to see their relatives had to wait outside, you know. And many people also told stories of how their maybe elderly relative went into hospital with something else, was diagnosed as having COVID once they got in there, put down as a COVID death, but definitely wouldn't have died, perhaps, if they hadn't got in. Yep, exactly. And we know from other NHS um, data that gets released weekly that actually about 60 to 65 percent of the cases, the COVID cases in England are, as you say, people who went into hospital for some other reason. Mm. And they either picked up COVID when they were in hospital or they also happened to have COVID but just didn't know about it. And then they got a test once they made it into the hospital. Yes. So, I mean, as far as the situation goes now i mean are you seeing any evidence at all that the numbers of people dying at home in in, in excess numbers is coming back down or is it still high um, it's still very high the only thing that has changed in the recent weeks is that the the hospital and care home deaths um, have gone back into excess they're still lower than the home deaths and that's probably because the kind of last wave or the current wave of coronavirus that we're in with these new ba4 and ba5 sub variants mm. But when you look across the whole of the year, there's definitely the most disproportionate rise is in these at-home deaths. And this is something that, you know, didn't happen really before the pandemic. But in 2020, at-home deaths were third higher than they had been in 2019. And that trend upwards has just not stopped continuing. Mm, yeah. And of course, the other problem we've got, I suppose, and you mentioned this in your piece as well, is the shortage of, of GPs. Uh, who would be the sort of first port of call for a lot of people. So again, not being able to see a GP, presumably, um, has a knock-on effect and people might be becoming more ill as a result. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we know there's like huge, huge waits for GPs. There's um, a summing light, uh, I think 60% of GPs are currently working a three-day week. So it just makes it harder and harder to access GPs. And, you know, you'll know yourself mm. that um, you, you, you phone your GP for an appointment and, you know, it could be weeks to, to a month before they'll see you. And, you know, if, if you have a minor health problem that kind of goes away on its own, then that's that's fine. But there's a lot of people who they have something more serious in the early stages. And perhaps if they could get access to the GPs and um, they could get earlier treatment and it doesn't escalate to this stage. And I think, you know, once I wrote this piece and um, I've had a few people getting in touch with me who were convinced that their loved ones have died because of that reason that mm. they, they just couldn't get treatment for a long time. And then the problem became so big. Oh, for sure. Killed. Listen, I've, I've spoken to people on a regular basis um, over the past year who've said that uh, they themselves have contracted cancer, but it's now at stage four and there's nothing anybody can do. And everyone says, well, of course, if you'd managed to come to us during stage one, we might have been able to save you, but they couldn't be seen. Nobody would see them because of COVID. And that I think will be a terrible death toll once any inquiry finds the real numbers were a lot worse for those who didn't die of COVID but have died of something else. Yeah, and I think this is a kind of a key point that um, we're driving at for this COVID inquiry, that obviously it's going to look at the preparedness for COVID and the, how we got the PPE and the vaccines, but lockdown created this whole other um, health crisis 
um, with and also you know problems with kids education and a, a whole range of areas and I think it's really important that the COVID public inquiry looks at every aspect of um, what we've caused with our response to the pandemic. Mm, I think you're absolutely right. Michael, fascinating stuff. Thank you very much indeed. Michael Simmons there has written a great piece, a data journalist in The Spectator. Get your hands on it if you can. Uh, we'll try and uh, forward it out there on Twitter uh, if we can do that as well. Coming up, uh, much more besides, of course, we'll take your calls. And Howard Cox is going to join us as well. There's a fuel crisis going on. He's going to bring us the latest. This is Talk TV. I think I read the M54 as well. Let's talk to Howard Cox, founder of Fair Fuel UK, of course, who's been asking for a very long time to get the fuel situation and the cost of fuel sorted out. Howard, a very good afternoon to you. Hello, Mike. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, tell me what's going on around the country and who's actually protesting today and why? Well, it's a, a group of people that have started on the social media, uh, on Facebook, I understand, um, uh, they're a di- disparate sort of group from all sorts of things, from drivers to van drivers to truckers. Uh, they're basically, uh, you know, the law-abiding, tax-paying, probably a lot of Tory voters. They're just sick to death with the, the, the cost of fuel. And they, something's got to be uh, happen, and they're going to show uh, exactly what they feel about it. It's by protesting. I've not, nothing to do with it, but provided they do it lawfully, I support it. Yes, absolutely right. So what's the, the sort of nature of it? Are they going and rolling roadblocks? Is it sort of go slow, that kind of thing? It's a go slow, I understand, particularly I was told by them uh, only yesterday that they're going to try it only on motorways or big dual carriageways and they're only going to slow the inside or the slow lane up, that sort of thing. But I understand they are causing blockades elsewhere. If they're impacting on emergency vehicles, I do not support that whatsoever. No, of course not. No, because we obviously had those idiots from Just Stop Oil actually sitting down on the track at Silverstone yesterday at the Grand Prix, um, which led to one or two interesting developments. One, first of all, Lewis Hamilton said, you know, it was a big up to them. And then he said later, actually, maybe it wasn't such a good idea. I mean, particularly if that crash, there was an incredible crash that took place. If you saw it yesterday, I mean, if they'd been anywhere near that, it would have been dead. I know. I mean, uh, some people wouldn't shed a tear too much for some of them going, disappearing this mortal coil. No. But, uh, but it's stupidity. That's the mentality of that group. But these people today are protesting because of the cost of living, their livelihoods, the, all sorts of things going on, the inflationary process, all of that. That's what they're protesting. And this total clueless government. They're in economic torpor. There's total inertia, not doing anything. We've got Germany cutting fuel duty by 25 pence. Mm. Why the hell are we not doing it here? You've been calling for it for a long time. And why are they not doing something? If they did something, I think they get a lot more Tory voters back. Well, I mean, it doesn't take a brain uh, surgeon to work out that if you make it easier for people to actually afford to live the way that they were living uh, up to about a year ago, you know, they will, um, you know, give you their vote. They will be very happy to do so. But I mean, the one thing that we can also say about the way that this place has been run, and I mean Britain as a whole, is that if they try to bring London to a standstill, it's too late. The Sadiq Khan's already managed that. Yes, I mean, well, well, absolutely, we, that's another subject. But fundamentally, and I've been on your side for a long time, stop doshing out cash, just get cut the price of living, cut the price of products, cut yeah. the price of fuel. Everything on this planet arrived on a truck once. Yes. And if you cut the cost of that, what would happen to the economy would be fantastic. Inflation would slow, probably fall, and it would help consumers actually put more money in their pocket. They'd use the high street. I mean, I'm getting people telling me they don't bother to go to the high street now. They're not shopping. They're doing a monthly shopping turnover weekly shop we're getting people who can't get to hospitals for medical treatment those sorts of things because they can't afford to fill their car wake up government we're 25p more in this country on average for diesel than in the rest of europe Mm. we're about 20p more for petrol 
wake up and smell the coffee, Boris and Rishi. Yeah, and we keep hearing that they're going to make a joint statement of some kind. I heard somebody else say it again this morning. You know, we've been waiting weeks for this joint statement. I'm not sure it's ever coming. Well, and what's it going to say? Is it another 5p cut? Mm. Yeah, so what? It, it doesn't touch the sides. Let's be really really radical and do something about this and put more money into people's pockets they will spend it'll help businesses jobs inflation will all follow all the benefits of that please i'm begging you boris and rishi cut duty big yes indeed i'm looking at a story here from west mercia where the police there have said that they're going to take action against those they believe put the public at risk uh, by doing this fuel protest on the m54 they're claiming that they endangered other motorists i mean that's not exactly going to be helpful if the police start targeting people who are genuinely uh, simply doing what you might call a go slow i mean it's not exactly endangering other motorists is it well, I don't think it is. I mean, obviously, there might be more detail there. We don't know what some of the protesters, there might be some radical people going in there and doing stupid things, Mike. We don't know. It's the usual thing. The small people always cause the problem. Yes. This is a, what I understand from the people on social media arranging this. This is a peaceful, law-abiding protest. It goes slow. Yes, it will impact on some people's lives in terms of 20 minutes or longer in a queue or something like that. But that they just want to nudge the government into doing something. And I mean, you talk to the government all the time. Uh, some some cabinet ministers won't admit to it, but we know that you do. Um, what are you hearing from them? There must be people tearing their hair out inside of, you know, the powers, the corridors of power, because they must know what they want the government to do. Well, I had a coffee with one in Port Cullis House last week. Mm. And uh, uh, and I said, what are you feeling about what's happening at the moment from number 10? And uh, uh, I can't explain this. I can't use on this. Uh, thing. And this is a very high profile uh, uh, and I'm going to respect their privacy, but he said, Howard, keep on pro- protesting, keep getting your message out there, keep using things like talk to TV to get the message out. For God's sake, keep going. He, yeah. They will yeah. listen. They will have to. Well, basically, all the, you know, their their vote, the Tory votes are hemorrhaging right across the country. Yeah. And if they yeah. don't get that right, they will not be in government edit for, for too much longer. Well, that's the thing. And we do know that Boris Johnson up- operates kind of best and, and does the things that the people want if he feels like he's under pressure. So are you absolutely right? I think we've got to keep the pressure up. Absolutely. I mean, Boris, I, I, you know, I listened to your bit beforehand there and, and, and what Anne Whittacombe said, who was my MP previously many years ago where I live. And I know Anne quite well. She's right. Just can we get the government uh, on board and actually doing what they're elected to do? And that's to help people and get make their lives better, cut the cost of living. They can do it. They can do it very much so. They've got money sloshing around all over the place. The five billion windfall tax, four billion extra in VAT because the high cost of uh, uh, of, of, of pump prices. That's about nine billion. That's way more than the 20p cut we need to, you know, so they wouldn't lose any money. And they just do it. I don't understand why they're sitting there not doing it. No, I know. Because it seems to me extraordinary that you've got a pretty much a, a, a tap in here uh, to make yourselves a bit more popular. We know how Boris yes. Johnson likes the idea of being popular. And yet he's somehow resisting it. I just don't understand why. Well, exactly. When you've got people, you know, uh, great MPs like John John Redwood, you've got lots of other people saying to him, get control of the cost of living, reduce inflation, and we will be in government for a lot longer. It's as simple as that, because that's what they voted for a Conservative government, lower taxation. Particularly, I mean, businesses themselves are pulling their hair out because, the, I mean, I know a couple of haulage companies at the moment are on the teetering on bankruptcy because of the cost of fuel. Yeah, I mean, it really is impossible for people uh, to actually make ends meet at the moment because not only is, every, if you're running, say, for example, any kind of hospitality outfit, you're paying more for everything that's being brought to you. So the food's more expensive, the drink is more expensive, even the people are becoming more expensive because everything has to travel to get to you. You know, unless you're actually growing everything in your back garden, I'm afraid 
all of these increases are hitting at the wrong time. And you're absolutely right. And, and particularly in the in, in distribution business, we're an internet, internet economy, the, the, their profits are falling, falling. So they can't invest, guess what, in cleaner kit, mm. cleaner engines, you know, all these sorts of things. They can't employ more HGV drivers. Yeah. And, it, and what we're spending money is on net zero targets, which are completely stupid. Yeah. Well, I mean, going back to the British Grand Prix, I think they sort of hit peak ridiculousness when they put out a message about how they were looking forward to becoming net zero at the, oh. Formula, at the Formula One. And I'm going, you do realise that you actually have a business which is based around people driving very, very um, fuel inefficient cars at very, very high speed around a track, which probably would be the equivalent of you know decimating a thousand acres of the Amazon every five minutes. Well, again, it's this this wokery, isn't it? This uh, virtual signalling BS that we keep seeing on a daily basis from people who are fundamentally hypocrites. Let's get back to reality, please, this government. Please help consumers and your voters. You will be in for a long time, Conservative mm. government, if you cut fuel duty by 20 pence per litre today. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Well, let's wish them all the best, Howard. Uh, in terms of putting pressure on governments, who knows if it's going to make any difference? A lot of people think uh, they're just punishing motorists. But, Howard, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Um, Oliver says this. Uh, so it's OK for drivers to hold up the roads, but when other protests take place, the right eight clutching their pearls. I presume you mean are clutching their pearls. The train drivers were protesting about their rights, and that was apparently terrible. The hypocrisy is astounding. Well, I've never said it's OK for drivers to hold up the roads, but I have more of an understanding of why they're doing it. Uh, the people who are trying to uh, glue themselves to things do so uh, because they are completely and utterly deranged and deluded about the fact that the earth is going to blow up in about three years' time. So they're wrong. They're also proving themselves to be really idiotic by gluing themselves to the racetrack at Silverstone, uh, where cars are driven at around 200 miles an hour. One of them actually crashed and had they been anywhere near that, they wouldn't be around uh, for uh, waiting to see the end of the planet because they would be actually uh, deceased, and that is ridiculous. Uh, train driver striking is a very different matter. Uh, they're people who think that this is a good time to somehow you know, blackmail the government into giving them more money. Nobody's asking for more money. Uh, people are asking, in this instance, for the government to reduce the duty, to reduce the tax on everything, which affects the price of everything. For heaven's sake. 0344-499-1000 is the number. We'll take some calls coming up very shortly. Um, how about this, says Paul. It's not only our police that have lost their way. Our government have no direction whatsoever. We have no leadership and no ideas. Patriotism is our salvation. And we need a patriotic PM and a Brexiteer Red Wall cabinet if we are to prosper as a country. Well, I think that's right. The problem, of course, for me now um, is that this government is lurching from one crisis to another. And the sense is that Boris Johnson is not in control of it. We've had various conversations about whether he should stay, whether he should go. The bottom line here is that whether he stays or goes, he needs to get out of this torpor of just falling from one thing to another. Get something done. Save people money. That's the answer. This is Talk TV. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. A whole lot of you shut up.